This episode of Saturday Morning Rewind is brought to you by Voice Chasers. Find out more about the voice actor you hear on this episode at voicechasers.com. Voice Chasers, celebrating the art of voice acting since 1996. Welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind. A show dedicated to the love of animation and feeling like a kid again. So let's go back in time to when cats defended Third Earth. Sword of Omens, give me sight beyond sight. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror that flaps in the night. And knowing was half the battle. Yo, Joe! Let's go back with Saturday Morning Rewind and your host, Tim Nidell. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Saturday Morning Rewind, the show that takes you back to your childhood one interview at a time. Of course, my name is Tim Nadell. I am the host over here. Please make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I have two different accounts. First one is at Saturday Rewind. Second one is at Tim the Tune Man. Also, make sure to follow us on Facebook. Just type in Saturday Morning Rewind on Facebook. Today's episode is a, an amazing one. I love this interview. The super talented Neil Ross makes his return on our show today. Of course, you all know Neil. He was the voice of Rambo from the Rambo animated series. You gotta learn to take orders. When I told you to get away from the gate this afternoon, did you listen? No! He was also Keith on the original Voltron from 1984. Well, Pidge, there's a first time for everything. Ready and... Spinning laser blades! And of course, my favorite, he was Shipwreck from G.I. Joe. Remember, taking something that isn't yours just isn't right. And knowing is half the battle. So, of course, during that interview, we talk about all those characters I just mentioned. We also talk a lot about his brand new book he just released. So hop on over to neilbook.com and check out his brand new book called Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers. I snagged a copy of it and also got a, a copy of the audio version of the book, which I highly recommend, by the way, because he does the, the voiceover for it. And this man's got some amazing stories to tell. You guys really need to pick up this book. It's at a reasonable, super great price. I highly, highly recommend it. Of course, that is neilbook.com. And of course, make sure to jump over to our website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. And from there, you can follow us on YouTube. We have two separate YouTube channels. Just click on the link. You'll see both of them right there. The first one is our official Saturday Morning Rewind one, where I post videos about voice actors and cartoons. I know you guys are going to love it. And the second one is more like a vlog-style channel featuring more of me. I have the unboxing show where I unbox toys from the 80s and 90s. And then I do vlogging videos of my trips to Disneyland, conventions, all that kind of stuff. So make sure to follow both of those right there. And again, I want to give a big shout out to our Patreon supporters for the month of November. So again, thank you Jared Tolbert, Mike Clemens, Erica Palello, Caitlin O'Colorful One, Gemma Bright, Tori Garvin, Jeff Peterson, Q Fortier, and of course you as well could be on this list. So go to, go to our donation tab on our website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com, and donations start at only two bucks a month, and all of it goes towards the podcast and YouTube channels. But without further ado, here is the wonderfully talented Neil Ross. Tell me about your your book. What made you want to sit down and write a book? Well, I never actually wanted to sit down and write a book. In <laughs> fact, uh, 
I didn't think I was capable of doing it. Um, I have some facility for writing. People have said that, but uh, somehow I'm so lazy that it, I never write a great deal. But what happened was this began as a monologue. I was thinking of maybe booking myself into venues and doing a half an hour monologue about uh, working in the animation industry and voiceover in general. And then the second half would be a Q&A. That was the way I envisioned it. And I started writing and I got to a certain point and I said, this is either the world's longest monologue or shortest book. (laughs) <laughs> and I've got to make a decision here. And then I just, I thought, I wonder if I could plow through to the end. And uh, 560 odd pages later, <laughs> I guess I did. Was there a, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you had to, you know, lodge your memory quite a bit. Was was there something that you kind of forgot about when you were writing it? And it was like, oh yeah, this happened. Yes, a lot of things popped into my head. Other things have popped in since the book was published, mm-hmm. but no, we're, it's already longer than War and Peace, so, <laughs> um, you know, but it, it was, what I would, I had a very unorthodox way of working, at least as I understand it, the way grown-up professional real writers write, is they carve out a certain time period, and that is sacred, mm-hmm. and if it's nine to noon, uh, I don't care if the world is ending, they're sitting there at the keyboard between nine and noon trying to write. And I didn't work like that. I would think about an upcoming chapter. And that process might involve uh, a week, two weeks, who knows? I would just mull it in my head as I wandered or uh, staggered around the house. And when I sort of hit critical mass, I would lunge at the keyboard and type away in a frenzy and try to get it all (laughs) down. And then I'd go back to thinking about the next chapter. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, people say, well, how long did it take you to write this? Well, it was about a year. But if you're picturing me hunched over a keyboard six days a week for eight hours, that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. And that's why it took a year. I'm more wondering how long it took to record the audiobook. Oh, don't ask. I, uh, <laughs> I actually recorded it twice. First time around, I made technical mistakes and I had to just throw the whole thing away and start over. Uh-huh. Pretend that was a rehearsal. And I did that again. I, you know, some of these guys will book a studio and sit there for, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 hours recording. I just can't do that. I, I would get up super early in the morning. Well, super early for me. And I'd bang out, I don't know, X number of about 45 minutes to an hour. And then I'd say, that's it for today. Mm-hmm. I don't know how these people who record audiobooks do it, frankly. I yeah. Mean, my book and I'm getting fed up. You know, I almost fired myself <laughs> three times while I was doing this. I asked, I, I picked up the audiobook, by the way, and I just adored it because there you are sitting, you know, telling me the story of your life. And what I loved about it was that you could do the voices. It's funny. I almost forgot to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, some of them came organically. Like when I'm telling the story of that job I had in New York City, I sort of do voices and they're not you know, any voices that you may or may have heard in a cartoon. I'm just sort of doing in my impression of those uh, wonderful zany characters I worked with in New York when I was uh, 17 years old. And uh, yeah, and then when I start, uh, describe auditioning for certain characters that I ended up playing, uh, I, I kind of go into the voice w- while I'm describing that process. But um uh, I kind of had to be reminded to do that. People, you're going to do the voices, of course. <laughs> I, well, yeah, sure. Uh, 
almost forgot. Well, I'm glad you did. It really made it more fascinating, I thought. I loved how you would, you know, mimic, you know, people you knew while you're growing up. And that made me think, how often would you use somebody you knew from your childhood or growing up as a voice reference for a character? That's a good question. I don't, I cannot recall, well, there's one story in the book. What usually happens is you go in and they have a drawing and maybe a one or two paragraph description of the character and you try to soak that in and you hope you hear a voice in your mind and then you try to reproduce that in the audition. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, whoever's running the audition might say, well, that's in the ballpark, but I I feel he could be older and you start tweaking it and playing with it and Mm -hmm. you end up with something and it starts to sound familiar and you're thinking, what am I doing? And there's a story in the book about how I inadvertently uh, stole a character from uh, Pat Fraley. Yep, yep. And then we wound up both cast in this show, both doing the same voice. How this is, how this could have happened, I don't know. That, <laughs> that was, so then we had to figure out what to do from that point on. But it took me, as I was doing the audition, I, I was, in the back of my mind, I was saying, I've heard this somewhere. What am I doing? And it's like two days later, I'm walking through a parking lot and I go, oh, that was Fraley. I, I was doing Fraley. This is not good. <laughs> And then, of course, I run into him, and I go, hey, you know, I, uh, and he's, well, you know, guess what? I auditioned for the same show, and I used that voice, and I said, oh, dear, we're in trouble. But uh, it, it all got resolved in the end. But I, I cannot, other than that, I cannot remember ever sitting down and saying, I think I'll do uh, my Uncle Bob yeah. for this character. That, that's not really how it works. Again, what I describe in the book And for those of you who are saying, what book are they talking Mm -hmm. about? It's my autobiography titled Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers. And uh, if you're at all interested, at the end of this wonderful program, we will tell you how you can obtain a copy for yourself. Yep. But uh, what was I talking about? And I've now taken myself completely off track here. Uh, Using people's voices that you as reference... Yeah, I've, I've, oh, I know where I was going. Michael Bell, who's another wonderful voice actor, Mm -hmm. he described what we do best, in my opinion, and I put it in the book. It's called, he he calls it Vocal Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) And I guess everybody knows about the Mr. Potato Head game where you put noses and mouths and mustaches on this oval and make different faces. Well, we're kind of doing that with our vocal cords. You know, an old guy, well, is he one of, one of these kind of old guys, or is he one of these kind of old guys? Does he have an underbite, or does he not? And you you just start playing around like that. You're just throwing mustaches and noses on your voice and uh, hoping uh, somebody somewhere says, that's it. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you're doing that, as I say, you can stumble into of uh, uh, sounds and voices and, and you say geez I've heard that before what am I doing and you don't know you don't figure it sometimes you never figure it out it might be a, a character you saw in an old movie on television five years ago and you just, uh, just suddenly it pops into a synapse in your brain and, and, and you start doing it also in your book I loved how you opened it how you're talking about 
you know, narrating for the Oscars, which is a huge, huge deal. If people don't know that huge deal. I loved how you said how nervous you were. It's great to hear that a professional still gets nervous like that. I mean, who wouldn't, honestly? Well, it is it is an enormous amount of pressure um, because, you know, most voiceover people or a lot of voiceover people who do not come out of a broadcasting background, and a mm-hmm. lot don't, uh, they've never really been live. You know, they'll breeze into a studio thinking, oh, I'll probably nail this on take seven. Exactly. And when you're live, you're live. It's, it's take one for three hours and 45 minutes. And... Um, if you if you foul up, you do it in front of a worldwide audience of who knows, you know, 40, 50 million people, plus a theater full of the cream of mm-hmm. Hollywood. Um, you know, it's the last place you want to foul up. And there's all kinds of chances to foul up because, again, you're not in charge when you're a disc jockey. You can kind of call the shots. And if you get in trouble, go into a commercial break and figure out what the hell to do next. Or a talk show host can do that. But this thing, you're taking cues from the control room. You have no no control over when you go on. They tell you. And it's difficult because you're, you're hearing it in, in headphones. And what you're hearing is this cacophony of shouting voices. And somewhere in that mix of sound is a guy going, stand by, announce, announce, go. And uh, that's when you talk. And if you jump the gun or you miss a cue, uh, they're not happy. <laughs> wow. Did you have any close calls or at any time that you did mess up at all? Yes. I describe uh, in the book where um, basically every announce has a separate page in the script. And so it was really the, the, the top of the show where I was supposed to introduce Steve Martin and that was on a separate page, so I flipped the page, and I'm waiting for the cue, and a guy is pounding on a timpani. And fortunately, we had this wonderful production assistant uh, to whom I'm very grateful, and uh, if I missed a cue, she would tap me on the back, you know. And uh, I, she said, do you mind me doing that? I said, you have my permission to hit me with a brick if that's what it takes. <laughs> So she spun around, slapped me on the back, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Martin. Otherwise, you know, we'd all still be sitting there and the guy would be playing the <laughs> timpani. So I thought I needed a separate cue to say that. Uh-huh. That was the closest that I know of well, that's that good. I came to disaster. Could have been much, much worse then. <laughs> you imagine us all still there, Steve Martin, just behind the curtain going, when is he going to make the announcement? Yeah. I'm getting old. So as you're writing this book, is there a certain chapter that stands out for you? Well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. I don't know. It's it, the, the, the chapter that, that's titled um, Summing. Oh, I've got an email. <laughs> uh, the, the chapter near the end, Summing Up. I'm, I, it's kind of nice for me, I don't know about the reader, where I sort of tie all these various threads together and uh, in my life, and I, I, I talk about what's happened to a lot of the people that you've met along the way. And uh, I, got, I got kind of emotional writing that chapter, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when I thought about um, 
And again, I'm going to be referencing things that people who have not read the book don't know what I'm talking yeah. about. But there was a, a very influential uh, disc jockey when I was starting out. I was a huge fan of his and met him briefly on a couple of occasions. His name was Don McKinnon, and he tragically died in a car accident uh, in his early 30s. And I found out where he was buried, and I go to visit the grave, and I bring an old friend uh, along with me. And uh, I got kind of emotional writing that and thinking about it. I loved how huge music was for you as a kid and when you were starting out. Because I know we're different generations and all, but in the early 80s, I was the same way. I was glued to my radio. I would call in all the time, request songs, call in all the time, trying to win contests. And I won quite a bit, actually. And I loved hearing about you that. You were one of those. I was one of those, yeah. We used to have lists of people at the radio show. <laughs> if so-and-so wins another contest, whoever gives him the prize is fired. Oh, that's awesome. But there were people who, uh, I don't know what they did. Uh, I guess they had speed dial. I don't yeah, know. I, yeah, I think it's what it was because, you know, 80s, we did have speed dial and all. So that's probably I, what I, it was. I I kind of got my comeuppance at the other end. I'm out of radio a long time, and my daughter was, oh, I don't know, seven or eight. And she was trying to win a radio contest, and uh, just tears and frustration, and I had to sit her down and go, look, they've got six incoming lines maybe. There's 10,000 people dialing at minimum. Uh, but they said it's easy to win. I said, well, they say a lot of things, darling. But my advice to you is turn the radio off and go do something else. Yeah. But <laughs> she was inconsolable. She thought she was going <laughs> to dial in and win. Oh, that's yeah. great. What are some of your um, past and present favorite artists to listen to? Boy, I'm bad. I I try to stay current, but I, I'm I've turned into I've turned into my father, you know. I have to all noise. I have to. I cannot stand most I can't stand ninety nine percent of modern music. I'm pretty much listen to I have a Sirius XM, so I pretty much listen to classic vinyl and uh, mm -hmm. classic yep. rewind. Yeah, I got both of those on my station as well. Yep. I have a an old buddy who was a did the news on one uh, show I did in San Diego in the mornings and he just says there hasn't been any good music since 1974. And I <laughs> I say, well, you know, there may be a few exceptions to that rule. But nope, nope, nothing good <laughs> since 74. Well, okay, maybe you're right. I, 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 I mention it in the book. There was this explosion of creativity beginning around 1966 mm -hmm. and petering out around 74. But I mean, th this torrent of talent, it, it, it just seemed like every week, here's two new albums by two new groups, and mm -hmm. they're more spectacular than the last two, you know? It's like, where are these people coming from? There's so many of them, and they're so good. And I, I think a lot of it is, you know, th there's a period when you're young, and you haven't been exposed to that much music. And whatever the music is that's popular when you're young, that's what you're going to like. And that's yeah. kind of what's going to stay with you to a greater or lesser degree through the rest of your life. That's true. That is true. You know, I had, I, this is just a, a quick little anecdote, but I was talking to a woman and she was really excited. She said, oh, my boyfriend got tickets and it's my favorite band and I'm going to see him live. And I said, oh, great. Who is it? She said, Kiss. <laughs> 
And she must have seen the look on my face. And she said, well, you know, I was 15 and and had all their hits. And I said, say no more. I get it. I get it. Yeah, there's a little aspect of sentimentalism, you know, that, you know, makes you love something more than you should. Yeah. But now, I mean, I listen to the quote unquote hits and it. Well, the difference is, you know, as I say in the book, when when the when rock and roll came along, it was it, it was the kids music. And it's kind of all we had. Because back then, the main culture was aimed at grown-ups. They mm-hmm. made movies for grown-ups and magazines for grown-ups. And everything was grown-ups, except for rock and roll. That was ours. Mm-hmm. And it, was our, it was very precious to us. Young people today, there's, the whole culture is beamed at them. And there's so many things that are, that, that are available. The music is not that important to them, I don't yeah. think. Not the way it was to no. us in the 60s and maybe you folks in the 80s. Exactly. It's, it's just a small part of the the overall culture, and uh, they may like a record here or there, but they don't have the the passion that we had because they have so many other distractions. Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah, don't make fun of me, but my favorite band of all time is the Eagles. Well, you know, I I know that there 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 are passionate people on both sides of the Eagles issue, but they must be doing something right. Yep. Uh, I think they're they're the highest grossing tourist touring band, are they not? Are and they they, right all, they just announced a few about a month ago that they have the number one selling album of all time now. Yeah. So they had to do something right. Yeah. But same thing with the, the lady you were talking about. I grew up in the Eagles. My dad loved them, and I remember my brother and I just listening to the radio, and we recorded the Eagles onto a cassette, and we just sang along, and that's my earliest mem- my memory of music was Eagles, so it just stuck with me over the years. Yes, I'm afraid I inflicted uh, quite a bit of the doors on my I love the doors. I love the doors. I don't know if she's uh, (laughs) grateful or not all these years (laughs) later, but I used to sing her to sleep uh, with the crystal ship. Wow. I won't, uh, I'm tempted, but I won't give you a sample. (laughs) You have to now. You have to. No, no, I don't. (laughs) One of my other favorite parts of the book was when you're talking about being there for the first ever recording session of Lorenzo Music. Well, no, it was the first animation. Yeah, exactly. First animated recording session. Yes, he had done uh, a, a quite a few commercials at that point. His voiceover career was uh, starting to flourish. But yes, Lorenzo Music, uh, for those who don't know, he went on to be the voice of Garfield. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he started out as a writer, producer in television, and he just had this unusual, almost deadpan delivery that, uh, you know, I'm not really doing it justice, Mm -hmm. but this was the guy who kind of sounded like this. And the first time we became aware of him was in a sitcom where he, he, you didn't see him, you just Mm -hmm. heard he was Carlton the doorman when the Rhoda character would push the button and go, Carlton, is my package? Or, Hello, this is Carlton, your doorman. And he appeared slightly drunk. <laughs> and, you know, people loved the character. So he went on to have this fantastic voiceover career. But yes, this was an episode of Pac-Man, and he's standing at the next microphone, and we're just about to uh, record, and he pokes me in the ribs, and he says, uh, I've never actually done a cartoon before. Is there anything I should know? 
And I gave him a couple of quick tips, and off he went. And uh, he didn't need any more help from me after that. No, he didn't. Do, he didn't do too bad for himself after that. He, yeah, he did pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking. I think it's maybe one of the most iconic voices of the '80s. Yes, you sure heard him a lot. He, mm-hmm. did, he did an extraordinary amount of work, commercials, animation, you name it. But I don't think he did anything in the promo trailer area, although that would have been funny. That would have. <laughs> must, it's must-see TV tonight. <laughs> it's a different approach. Oh, that's great. Or, in a world. I don't know that that would have <laughs> I need to hear that now. Somebody needs to make that, whoever can mimic Lorenzo music. Yeah. Well, that would be Frank Welker. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll see if Frank's available. Yeah, I loved how you said uh, you just kept on running to that Frank Welker guy every recording session. He'd be there for every cartoon. Well, I used to joke before the digital era came around. I said, we should just rig Frank up in a van with a tape recorder. and <laughs> Rather than showing up for these sessions, he could just record it as they're driving to the studio and then... Uh, when they get there, throw the tape in the door and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. He, anybody who's not familiar with Frank Welker, go to imdb.com and look him up. I think he has more credits than any other actor in the business. Yeah. If anybody has more, I'm not aware of them. I think he's up close to 900 credits at this point. And you'll be so amazed at his range. It's, I mean, he can be an insect that sounds like a little baby to, he can be the, the cave of wonders from Aladdin, that deep, deep throat ripping voice, but yet again, he can still do those little baby voices. And he does a lot of sound effects. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that surprised me when I got in the business that I assumed they used, you know, somehow generated sound effects somewhere but in a lot of cases that they would ask us to do stuff that really surprised me that that uh, i would have thought they would have found a sound effect in a library somewhere to do this but no they wanted the actors to do it so you you, sometimes you really had to stretch Mm -hmm. but i've always said uh, in fact i put it in the book my joke is that one of these days a director is going to ask Frank to do the sound of an iguana farting. <laughs> I have no idea what that sounds like, but I know Frank will do something and we'll go, that's it. Yep. That's it. That's an iguana fart. Come Without on. a doubt. Yep. <laughs> okay, so there's a story where you briefly mention it in the book, but I want to hear more about it. It's about you and Michael Bell recording the voices for, uh, for girls. Yeah, well, this was it. Uh, this was for a show called Voltron, Defender of the Universe, sir, 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 and um, they didn't want to bring in extra actors and actresses. They put together a core cast that they felt were versatile enough to cover everything. So uh, we recorded separately because of the logistics of the show which i explain in the book i won't go into it here so Mm -hmm. michael is finishing his session i'm coming in to follow him and the director says stick around michael i have some more for you and then he proceeds to tell us that they need some giggling simpering princesses and we say what is this to do with us and he (laughs) says well you're you're going to do this and i said i don't know if you've looked recently but we we're fellas 
uh, well, you'll have to come up with something there and we're not going to hire anybody to do this. So the next 15 to 20 minutes, I don't know about Michael, I can't speak for him, but it was among the most embarrassing experiences of my life. As you sit there going, (laughs) (laughs) just, just, uh, that's one I wish I could forget. uh, I'm, I'm guessing you don't remember the episode name, do you? No. No, I don't. Because I need to find that. I need to find that episode. You'll have to comb through all 125 (laughs) episodes to find it. I have it on DVD, so I will let you know if I find it. Please don't. (laughs) Tell no one. Yeah, just just imagine you and Michael Bell, two, you know, prominent characters in the G.I. Joe role, two manly men sitting there giggling like little girls. That's, That's amazing. Yeah, it was not a, it was not pleasant. <laughs> I wish I could unsee it or unhear it, but oh, that's great, that's great. And you mentioned in the book how you think Shipwreck is probably your most popular character, which to me, that's my. He is actually not just one of my favorite characters of yours, but he's one of my all-time favorite cartoon characters of all time. And I just love Shipwreck, and to me, it's because I think he was just so suave and cool. And in a show very dependent on characters, on, on characters like like G.I. Joe characters, he stuck out. And that's what I love about Shipwreck. Yeah, I think the reason that he stuck out was he is, unlike I think everyone else in that in G.I. Joe, he is a little bit conflicted. You mm-hmm. know, if you think about it, the good guys were really good and the bad guys were really bad. Mm-hmm. And Shipwreck was somewhere in the middle. He was basically a good guy, but he liked to skate around the regulations and do things his way, and he would get into trouble because he wasn't really doing it the way he'd been ordered to do it. And that's what I think makes him such an intriguing character and why he was so much fun to play because you got to play these these shadings as opposed to 100% good or 100% evil. Mm -hmm. And... um, he seems to, he, Springer in Transformers, a lot of people reference that. A lot of people yep. reference uh, the Green Goblin in Spider-Man. That's right. But I, I think Shipwreck may be the most popular character I've ever portrayed in, in any show. He definitely was one of my favorite toys growing up, too. Yeah. So, and so fact, I, I, helped, I, I helped keep you on the show then. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My, that was a that's kind of an inside joke yeah. from the book we, <laughs> uh, we mentioned I mentioned that uh, one of the uh, female uh, actors came in and she hadn't worked on the show in a while and a producer was strolling by and he said hey nice to see you haven't seen you in a while she says no I haven't been in the show in a while and he says well that's because <laughs> your doll isn't selling and he walks out the door <laughs> So she told all of us this, and we were trying. Is, was he kidding, or is it, maybe he was serious? Maybe if you haven't worked on the show for a while, run down to Toys R Us and buy a dozen of your action figures and see if see if they write you back in. <laughs> uh, and we never did get an answer to that, but uh, yeah, shipwreck was really a, a really a gift. I I I describe the audition that I did to get that part. And as I say in the book, I've gotten pretty good at developing total amnesia when it comes to auditions. Mm-hmm. But that one I vividly remember. And 
I chronicle it in my book, Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers. Details coming soon, kiddies. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. Yeah. And you also mentioned how you, why you think J.I. Joe still stands out today. And you nailed it for me, how it just takes you back to a simpler time. You know, things have changed since then. It's a dramatic change since the 80s. And my story about G.I. Joe and why I still love it today is because seven years ago, my father passed away at the age of uh, 57. And we were really close, even as a kid. And I was super close with him. And it hit me hard. And oh, what, I did, what I did... Young, what, that's very young. Yeah, or, very young. To me, at this the ripe old age of... It seems pretty young. <laughs> and so when it hit me, I just wanted to relive my childhood. I had an amazing, amazing childhood. Not just cartoons. We did a lot of as kids, you know. I, I was not an indoor kid all the time. I did many things outside. But as a kid, G.I. Joe was one of my favorite all-time cartoons. And when my dad passed away... I relived my childhood by watching shows like G.I. Joe. Hmm. And so it brought me back to simpler times. We hear it a lot at conventions. Uh, you know, old old fans of ours who are now in their 40s or late 30s or wherever they are, they, they come up and they say, that we just don't like the animation now. It's hmm. all so dark and cynical. We don't even like the kids watching it. We 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 give the kids our old GI Joe That's or Transformers. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do that too. DVDs and tell them watch this. Don't watch this other stuff. Yeah, it um, a simpler time. Good and evil, right and wrong. And uh, nowadays, it's it's hard to figure out, you know, which end is up. And I always thought that, uh, I, I didn't put it in the book, but I always had a theory about Transformers. And that is that people love to anthropomorphize uh, animals and almost anything. Uh, they attribute sort of human-like qualities to animals. We do this. We're, we're ridiculous. My wife and I, we have three cats, and we do their dialogue, you know. I'll just walk mm -hmm. into the kitchen and say, when are these people going to feed us? <laughs> yep. What's the deal? You know, <laughs> and I'm not doing me. I'm doing, you know, one of these stupid cats. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, little kids, they start out Winnie the Pooh, a talking bear and all these talking animals. And you get a little older. And the idea that uh, artificial intelligence and robots can not just function, but actually have personalities and feelings and, and get involved in dramatic situations. This is fascinating to people. Yeah. I don't know exactly why. It's just we seem to have this desire to anthropomorphize things. And I think that's a little tiny part of this, the reason that uh, Transformers is as popular as it is. I, I can agree with that. And also back in those days, you know, stuff like Tonka and Hot Wheels were huge. And so mm -hmm. to have kids growing up where your cars would transform or your, you know, a bulldozer would transform into a talking robot, that was a super cool. And it just stayed with them up until adults. It was a brilliant concept. It really was. It was. It was. So looking back at your book now, was there something that didn't quite make the book that maybe hit the cutting room floor or something you thought of after the fact that you would have put in there? Oh, yeah, there's quite a few things. I'm still thinking of things. Mm -hmm. Nothing that I that I deeply regret. 
uh, I chose not to write about certain things. For instance, I, I had a story. I actually wrote it and I took it out. I, mm. I met, uh, met and interviewed Liberace. Wow. I was in Hawaii. But I thought, my God, so much time has passed. You know, nobody, does anybody even remember him anymore? Uh, you know, is this worth yeah. the five or six pages? And so I took it out. Tell me more about that. You know, that that's huge for me, at least. I mean, I know people listening might not know who he is, but tell me more about that event. Yeah, maybe I should, um, you know, maybe I should have left it in. Who knows? It's, yeah. it's so hard to tell. But he came to Hawaii. He did a week there of shows. And for those who don't know Liberace, he had this unique sort of niche. He dressed very flamboyantly, had pompadoured hair, and he would play the piano, classical and light classical stuff, with this candelabra on top of the piano. And he had, had quite a good um, a patter that he would do between tunes, and he was adored by sort of middle America Mm -hmm. middle-aged and older women just loved the guy and of course he was he appeared to to be quite effeminate and there were all sorts of jokes and innuendos and some people said no 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 he just needs to meet the right girl <laughs> and you know so he, anyway, he made himself available to do radio interviews, and w one of the guys at the station dared me to do it, and I said, I got no problem, you know, I'll talk to the guy, and so he came in, and it was really interesting. He had no entourage. He came into the station alone. Wow. He had a sport coat on and a um, an ascot uh, uh, instead of a tie, which was kind of kind of a flamboyant yep. thing in the yep. days. He didn't. Uh, he didn't appear as effeminate as he did on stage, and he was mm. quite businesslike. He had a bunch of his albums under his arm, and he came in, and all us DJs are clustered around, looking at our shoes and snickering. And he said, "Well, fellows, I know you're not fans of my music, but maybe you have an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent <laughs> who is, and I would be more than happy to autograph these albums for them. And the guy's, oh, yeah, great, great. Make it out to Minnie and Max. Oh, wow. they'll love this, you know. He he completely won us over. Wow. And then I did the interview, and I deliberately did not do any kind of innuendo or, or fool around with him. I did a straight interview with him, and he um, he seemed to appreciate it. At the end, he said, this is one of the best interviews I've ever done. Aww. He said on the air. And then we, when we were talking off the air, he said, I really meant what I said. This, is, this has been a wonderful interview. Thank you. Wow. And I don't remember. Uh, the only thing I remember asking him is uh, his opinion of the Beatles. And mm -hmm. he said, well, obviously, their music is not my cup of tea. But he said, I think they're charming, talented, funny, and they're wonderful songwriters. Oh. He said, I predict that a, a lot of the songs they have written will be around for a long, long time. And he's right. Obviously, he was right. <laughs> so that was that was kind of an interesting experience. Yeah. And, um, but I, I just thought, oh, I don't know. I got to explain who he is. And, and yeah. I, I just ended up taking it out maybe not so much anymore because of the uh, michael douglas movie that came out around five years ago where he played yeah, him that's, that's been a while though. yeah I, it was a judgment call and it may have been a mis been a mistake to take it out well but... they can hear it right here then yeah well that'll be I'll, 
That'll be the, when I write the sequel. Can you write a sequel to an autobiography? <laughs> I think I you can. I think you can. Didn't Mel Blanc do that to his book? I don't remember. I don't either. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. So where can people find this book? Well, it's available on the uh, the internet, which you may have heard of. Maybe. <clears throat> All you need to do is go to www, not www, I hate that, <laughs> uh, www.neilbook.com, N-E-I-L-B-O-O-K, Neil Book, that's easy to remember, dot com. And uh, it's it's available in print, it's available in Kindle, it's available as a PDF, it's available as an audio book, as we mentioned, mm -hmm. which I think is the best deal because you get to hear my yeah. Lewis tones for 14 hours. <laughs> I did that at work yesterday, and here you are talking to me right now. It sounds like I'm listening to the book. Oh, bless your heart. It was a, it was a labor of love. Yeah, it's amazing and it's all great prices by the way so I highly highly recommend it so it's it's definitely a good pickup or if you just happen to remember the title vocal recall you can get to it at Amazon mm -hmm. and I will put all the links on all of all of our social media and uh, in the uh, interview taglines and everything Perfect. I appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. You're no very kind. And in closing, so you've accomplished many things. I've read all about it. So in 40 or 50 years, how would you like to be remembered? Well, it's, uh, I don't know that I have much choice over that. We all want to be remembered. I think if I'm remembered for anything, it will be the, the animation part of the career. Mm -hmm. And, um, some of the characters I did, and that's probably what people will remember. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I I picture a picture of shipwreck in the obituary. You know, <laughs> voice of shipwreck dies. Yeah, I'm okay with that. That's good. As I, uh, you know, I'm I, I. It's in the book. I talk about a wonderful voice actor named Chuck McCann. I love Chuck. He's on the show. I had him on I think five years ago. One of my favorite interviews. Such a crazy guy, but I love him to death. Yeah, he was he was he was something. He passed away, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been I, I don't know that it's been a year. I think it's been it, just about a year. Could be, but there's a story that I mentioned in the book, and I won't go through the whole thing. But yeah. essentially, he said at a certain point uh, that he was grateful if they remembered anything. Yeah, and I'm kind of in that in that ballpark. I won't pick it. I'll I'll let you know. The folks who are still around decide. Just the fact that anybody remembers anything is good enough for me. Mm -hmm. That is so true. And uh, Neil, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we need to do it again sometime. Well, you know, you know how to reach me. So uh, the next time you're in the mood, um, definitely give me give me a shout. Great. Can I have you close out the uh, interview as shipwreck if you can? Can he still do the voice? That's the question. Well, mateys, it's been a pleasure. I got to go uh, haul myself aboard uh, yet another vessel and perform yet another mission for these G.I. Joe characters. So it's your old pal Shipwreck saying uh, so long for now. Thanks for listening to Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.